1: Well, today we're going to be going undercover in terrorism with the man who wrote Undercover Jihadi, Inside the Toronto 18, Al-Qaeda-inspired homegrown terrorism in the West. We're not going to be just talking about that, however. This undercover jihadi has come (laughs) up from behind the covers or from under the covers and um, has been continuing to do amazing, amazing work in uh, counterterrorism. Now, um, first we're going to talk about his personal story, um, which is, t- is really what this book is about, undercover Jihadi. Um, and also then we're going to be talking about what he's doing now, which has to do with a new company that he has um, founded called the Fusion, um, well, called Fusion, uh, Fusion Intel, and that is a counterterrorism company, and we'll get into that. And there's a lot in between. Um, but he is one of the m- most admired, or at least in my opinion, and lots of other people's opinions, most admired men in the world in terms of the war on terror. So, Rubin Sheikh, welcome to the show.
2: Thank you for having me.
1: Well, why don't we start with? Um, why don't we start with your? Story, sort of an abridged abir- version. You know, I had Mubin on this show. Oh God, I don't even remember how many years ago. <laughs> um, but it is in archives. I don't know. It was. Do you remember the year? It was. Um, I think around 2006, um, or maybe later. I, I'm not really sure. But in any case, maybe it was a little later than that. But in any, well, when did your book come out?
2: Uh, the book came out in 2015.
1: Okay, so maybe it was actually closer to that then, um, yeah. and we talked about this, But um, so it's in, my, it's in the archives of The Voice America uh, on the page, but um, let's, let's just start anew and um, tell us, you don't have to go into as many details as before, but tell us the story, which is an amazing story. Mubin is one of the very few people in the world who have actually been undercover in a homegrown terror cell, and you will hear how it was particularly dangerous for him, um, being born in Toronto, but coming from parents who, uh, came there from India and being Muslim. So, I mean, of course, that's how you get it. (laughs) That's how you go undercover in a Muslim cell. But still, they were very, you will hear the, you will hear the, um, how dangerous it was. So why don't you take it away?
2: Sure. Um. So first of all, of course, thanks for having me uh, again. Um, it's things have certainly accelerated since the last time we spoke, and certainly since um, not just writing my book, but you know, when my, my work was being done uh, undercover. So basically, um, my, my parents are of uh, Indian background. Um, they, my father was actually uh, he was born in India and spent his teenage years in the U.K. Uh, and this would have been, you know, in the 60s, 50s and 60s uh, when, you know, shortly after the independence movements were really happening in, uh, in uh, the former colonial states. Uh, so India being a former colony of the UK, uh, my, my, my father's uncle, that is my father's, so my grandfather's brother, had already gone over to the UK as a laborer to basically set up shop, and my grandfather was a police officer in India. So Mm -hmm. um, he sent his son, my dad, to live with his brother, my dad's uncle, uh, in the U.K., and so my dad actually grew up and studied in the U.K., and this was, you know, back when electronics, you know, uh, electronic Mm -hmm. engineering... Telecommunications. These things were like brand new industries, right? And so my father had studied in uh, electrical engi- er, um electronic engineering, telecommunications. And one day in uh, at the campus, uh, the college campus, uh, Bell Canada, which is a Canadian company, telecom company, um, they had a hiring booth, and they basically. They, you know, they put out this, uh, this job fair to people who were in, enrolled in these programs. And so my dad kind of put his name down, and uh, he tells me a really funny story, actually, because he, he came in to, to actually sit in on the like for the recruiting uh, session, and the screen wasn't working. So when he came in, the person assumed that he was the IT guy. <laughs> and so, so my dad actually fixed the screen, and then when it sat down in the recruiting session, so the recruiter was like, wait a second, I thought you were the IT consultant. So he said, no, I, you know, I, I know the topic. Like, I know how to fix this stuff, but, you know, I'm here for the recruiting session. So, so he, he got, he, not because of that, but, I mean, it's a funny story, but he did get hired, uh, Bell Canada did offer him a job in Canada. And so what he would do is he would go back to India, get married to my mother, and then my dad would come back, come to Canada to basically start up and set up shop.
1: And then my mother
2: followed shortly thereafter. And then I followed shortly thereafter. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, yeah, and, and again, so now this is now... Um, Early 70s, mid 70s. I'm born in 75. Um, and this was a time when you, <clears throat> excuse me, you. a lot of the Indian, Pakistani uh, people were coming to North America, were going to other countries. You know, we heard about the UK, and they were also going to other countries as well. So, but my, my dad basically was in that, uh, you know, in that grouping. Of those who came here and were ready to start their their lives here and that's where and that 's where I was uh-huh. born. I was born into that uh-huh. cultural context and i 'm kind of giving uh-huh. these details it 's important to understand is uh, why it 's important to understand is because of how things later on you know um, develop for me in my own life. so one of the things that mm-hmm. the first things that they do uh, so again Indian Muslim family. Um, my father, being relatively well-educated, uh, you know, spoke English better than most of the other uh, indo paks that, that he was around, uh, he started a, a, a religious organization, he, he started a mosque, basically. Um, sure. And he, uh, and what had happened is, so, Indian Muslims, right, like Pakistani Muslims, generally don't know Arabic, Right. Arabic is the language of Arabs, right? And it's only if you study the language do you come to learn it. So I grew up, I was going to this, in this mosque, there was a madrasa, a Quran school, where, and it's pretty much, uh, the, you're, you're almost like a cliche or stereotypical, quote-unquote, madrasa. Now, madrasa in Arabic mm-hmm. just means school, right, a place where you, where uh-huh. you do studies, uh, but in the Indo-Pak context, when Muslim kids are learning the Qur'an, they are only learning how to read the Qur'an, largely for uh, uh, ritual prayers. Because the ritual prayers have to be read in Arabic, and so you learn how to read the Arabic. Mm-hmm. Now, you don't understand mm-hmm. what you're reading unless you're told the, interp- or the, the translation of the verses in whatever respective language. So generally, we're uh-huh. not, we don't learn Arabic. We don't grow up with, I would say, a, a deep understanding of the religion. I would submit that it's a very superficial, ritualistic, very rote, like robotic uh, approach, right? Movements. They don't know what they're doing and why they're doing it. So I grew up in, a, in this madrasa. Now... Because I'm in Canada, I'm also going to a public school by daytime, and the public Mm -hmm. school is a complete contradiction to the Quran school that I'm going to as a kid. Uh, The Quran school was tough. I mean, I, I hear stories similar to like nun schools, you know, where nuns are uh, and they wrap your hands with rulers and stuff like that. It Uh was very similar to that, right? And you got a little more than wraps. You got slaps. You got (laughs) smacks. Uh, you know they, it was it was tough, but the public school was a caring, nurturing environment. boys and girls were mixing there were you know uh, diverse backgrounds of all people, so this began to lay the foundation for an identity crisis that would hit me later on in life
1: yeah so let me let, yes let me just actually. Yeah. Um, when you were learning in, at the madrasa, when you were learning um, the prayers in Arabic, did, did, were you also being taught the translation in English?
2: Uh, we, there were some uh, texts that were translated. There were. Um, and the Quran, when we read the Quran, the text that we are using in front of us is only Arabic. But you do have your own texts at home that have the Arabic and the English. Okay. So it was easy to it was easy to kind of uh, figure out what was being said, right? Okay. But you had to mm-hmm. constantly uh, refer to your translated document, right? Like you couldn't,
1: uh-huh. you know, just
2: read the verses by yourself unless you also memorized the translation, right?
1: Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. Right. And
2: then you could. Uh, then it would seem like you knew what you were talking about, right? Because you would recite the Arabic and then give the English translation, which you only you memorized. So anyone who hears you reading the Arabic and then hears you reading or reciting it in English is going to think you know what the Arabic means, but in fact you don't.
1: So, yes, okay. And that's so important now, for you later on, right? <laughs> okay. That becomes important. That becomes important yeah. in your story later on.
2: It, it okay. sure does. It sure does. So, uh, so uh, you know, I get through. I, you know, I'm going through public school, and um, one of the things that uh, I was... Sorry, one of the things I was exposed to now was, you know, this Western culture, all these non-Muslim friends, and, you know, it was... I, I liked it, you know? I liked being around, being in this environment, and by the time, uh, you know, I got to high school... So this, uh, this is going to be the next phase of my, my life, I would say. Now that I get to high school, um, I'm introduced to a lot, lot more things. Uh, number one was the Army cadets. The Army cadets in the Canadian context is like the junior ROTC in the U.S. context.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: It's like a military-style yeah. environment for kids. Uh, there's always, of course, you know, the intention is that you would think about joining the military full time or whatever, uh, but you know, it's generally branded as a, a, a um, you know, a course or a training program for children to develop their citizenship skills, uh, you know, learn some ethics, civics, and so on. So. I'm going to draw a circle here. I'm going to put the Army cadets in that one circle. And I'm going to say that that is a peer group uh, that is unique to its environment um, and comes with its unique uh, values, right, value system and morality. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Now, I'm going to draw another circle around high school and put that there and say that's another peer grouping that I was in and a whole different, you know, value system and 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 social structure. This is where, you know, this is where all the good stuff happened. <laughs> I guess the you know, yeah. this is where we were typical teenagers. I was a typical teenager in the sense that you know, we we went out, we, you know, we had fun, we partied. Um and the Army cadets, of course, you know, it's very strict, very regimented. It's not really, you're not there to party. Um, and so in high school, what happened was one time my, my parents had left the, 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 the country. They actually left for about nine days. And, uh, and they let me here live in the house by myself. So mm-hmm. I took that as an opportunity to call up my friends and say, hey, let's have a house party. And sure enough, everyone came, and it was a rocking house party. And unfortunately, and unbeknownst to me, my father had told his brother to go and check on the house while he was gone. So in the middle of the party, my uncle bursts through the door, just losing it, yelling, screaming, freaking out. Uh, You know, basically seeing that these these dirty non-Muslims had invaded mm. his younger brother's house, defiling mm. his house. He literally said mm-hmm. to me, you know, you, you've mm. made this house dirty by bringing these people here. Right? And there's a whole thing, wow. you know, we can, we can go into that about, uh, you know, I mean, racism is something that is taught, right? And, uh, and it's all kinds of people are and can be racist. Uh, and definitely mm. my uncle is one of those people, let me tell you. So... <laughs> Uh, my whole world came crashing down on me. I was humiliated. I was embarrassed. And I looked and I, and I realized that I am in a whole lot of trouble. So I thought to myself, and I kind of psychologically panicked, and I thought to myself, the only way for me to fix this is to get religious. So mm. what I did is I would go with a group called the Tabligh Jamaat. Now the Tabligh Jamaat is a is a theologically fundamentalist group meaning they uh, their interpretations are quite literal and quite uh, separationist from the world right they don't they don't want to feel like they you know there, there's no um, long term uh, you know um, dreams and desires for living in this world, you're always fixated about, you know, living in the afterlife, right? So they really don't pay mm-hmm. attention to what's happening in the world. They don't involve themselves in politics. Um, so in that sense, they're, you know, they're benign, right? And, I, and what happened is they offer a, a four-month missionary-style training program, two months in India, two months in Pakistan. And so I went. I went with them. I spent two months in India, I went to Pakistan, and they would send me to a city called Quetta, in the Balochistan area of Pakistan, right near the federally administered tribal areas, um, where you know a lot of this Taliban uh, and other insurgency uh, movements uh, still exist, and you know had emerged from many years ago.
1: Now, you know, I'm just so um, wait, Lubin, yeah, wait, wait, Lubeen I don't know if you heard the music, but it was a signal. We need to take a break. I don't want to. I, oh. <laughs> you know, you know. Um, not only did, did you know we talk about this when you were on in let's say around 2015, but I read your book <laughs> like twice yeah. and loved it. <laughs> and I, I still love hearing this story. <laughs> so it is an amazing story. But we do need to take a break. So we will be right back. My guest is Mubeen Sheikh. He is. Um, Uh, He has so many credentials. He is—he has a master's in policing and intelligence and counterterrorism, and he is a subject matter expert for various organizations that I will tell you about later. So stay tuned. You're listening to Dr. Carol's Couch, and I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman.
3: the Internet's number one talk station number one talk station voiceamerica.com
0: Welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch If you have a question or comment for Dr. Carol dial toll free at 1-866-472-5788 Now back to the show here's Dr. Carol Lieberman
1: And welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch I'm your psychiatrist host Dr. Carol Lieberman talking today with Mubeen Sheikh, um, hearing the beginnings of his story. But, it, you know, Mubeen, as you were telling this, um, I was thinking about what an amazing movie, because I know the, well, not the end, but I mean, I know at least, uh, I, I know a lot more of the story, and um, I was just thinking what an amazing movie this would be, um, at least a, like um, a television movie, if not a, a you know, a full um, theatrical movie. Um, I mean, I'm sure, well, I guess, have you been uh, approached or have you been trying to make that happen, like, with the book? Well,
2: you know, I, I kind of feel like I did the book, right, and I kind of feel guilty of self-promoting myself, you know, self-promotion. And I don't know what it is. Like, I, I just feel that I, I don't want to do that. Like, I don't want to make it all about me. And and so what I've tried to do is branch off, and so I am working on. um, In fact, we're going to be doing our pitches in Hollywood in September. Um, So for your listeners out there, please uh, pray for me and pray for my success. Uh, It's going to be a a six episode. It's basically like I don't know if you watch Netflix, The Bodyguard. It's a really great six uh, episode uh, series. It's like a movie, but like three hours long, right? It's like a three-hour-long movie. Uh, and it yeah. will be very similar to this. So so what's happened now is basically I'm, I'm consulting in Hollywood to help them with character developments, plot developments, in these kinds of stories. So I will live on cool. in the characters of others. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Oh, that's fabulous! And yes, I can see why they would pick you. You're perfect, uh, perfect for that. Well, let's, I don't want to interrupt your story more. Um, uh, let me just give a little few more credentials. Uh, as I was saying, a a master's in um, policing and uh, counterintelligence, and uh, and also um, some of the places that you are have been a subject matter expert for. And are still presumably in national security and counterterrorism um, yep. would be CENTCOM and the United Nations Security Council, and so on. I mean, you can um, you, you might want yeah to the add alphabet some more soup pedazos. of agencies. Yes, yes. <laughs> All right, but let's go back to where you were in India and Pakistan on this um, yep. voyage to try to get yourself out of deep <laughs> deep trouble with your parents when they came home. <laughs>
2: Yeah, um, I was sent to Kueta uh, as I was mentioning. And Coueta, uh, I was just walking around the local area, um, basically inviting people to come to the mosque. And I saw from the distance some people, beards, robes, turbans. And I thought, oh, these are, you know, other Muslim guys that are living there, right? I'm completely naive to where I'm at. So as I came closer to them, I realized that these guys were actually armed with rocket propelled grenades, machine guns, ammunition. And it, it turned out that they were the Taliban. Right? This is mid-1995. And I only spent a few days in, uh, in that area. They did come back to the mosque that we were at. So I, you know, I, did, um, I didn't train with the Taliban. I, I had a chance encounter with the Taliban is what happened. And, and I became enamored by them in that chance encounter, okay? And, and I say that I was bit by the jihadi bug at this time. <laughs> because for them, for uh-huh. me, they were the heroes of old, right? They were the, you know, the authentic, you know, disciples of the prophet, peace be upon him, right? And this kid uh-huh. looking for this new identity, especially one couched in religion, coming from a background of, you know, military training, this was the focus point now for me. And, I mean, they represented mm-hmm. all those things in one. And so I began to uh, internalize their their ideas. And one, their idea was you have to be a militant. It's all about fighting the enemies of God. And you are, mm-hmm. you know, the chosen few. Right? This is a very similar recruiting narrative that's used even in the military, right? Uh, the best of mm-hmm. the best, right? Uh, yeah, or whether yeah. it's white supremacists or whatever, it's always this idea of you are doing what all the rest are not doing. You're special, right? So this is the this mm-hmm. idea that came into my head. I came back uh, to Canada and, uh, at, the, at the end of 95, um, and I really started to accelerate my recruitment I was preaching the the, the the benefits of the Taliban. Then in 1998, um, you might have heard of this guy, Osama bin Laden, came out with his fatwa against the Jews and Crusaders, and so we became we mm-hmm. me and other young guys, you know, with similar stories, who are now very militant. Um, we were completely enamored by the conflicts that were going on in the world. In 1996, the Russians invaded uh, Chechnya, and Chechnya became the, the, you know, the cause. And so at that time, I thought of going to Chechnya as a foreign fighter to fight the Russians. Now, thank well. God I didn't go, but that's the in- mentality mm-hmm. I was involved in. In 1998, mm-hmm. this bin Laden fatwa came out, and we were supportive now of this guy, Osama bin Laden. Uh, so from 95 to 2001, I was really involved in this group. And then 9-11 happened, of course, 2001, and that really affected me. It, you know, I I, I saw the, the, the imagery of the buildings on fire and the buildings uh, come down, and, and it really affected me, and I thought to myself, you know, this is not right. Yeah, I, I understand fighting the enemy and those who are against you and blah, blah, blah. But wh- how do you explain this? How do you justify this? Mm-hmm. So it caused uh, you know, me to, to reconsider and ask myself, I don't know Arabic. You know, Back to the Quran school. I don't know Arabic. Yeah. I didn't <laughs> study any of this stuff properly. So what I would decide is I'm going to sell my stuff, move to Syria... This is in 2002, by the way, before the war. Uh, There was still a semblance of of, uh, stability there. I I sold my stuff, moved to Syria, stayed there, lived there for two years, studied Arabic and Islamic studies, and basically went through a natural, organic de-radicalization process. Uh, The the scholars that I was exposed to who were Sufi scholars, and Sufi scholars are like, I always describe them as the Jedis of the Muslim world, And, like, Wahhabis are like the Sith, right? So I spent two years in Syria, went through a period of de-radicalization, came back to Canada, and basically became a walk-in for the Canadian Security Intelligence Service, right? I had a newfound appreciation for the rights that we have as Muslims in the West, and I was ready to sign up on the dotted line.
1: Okay. And I did. Okay, wait. Okay, wait. So, what do you mean by a natural de-radicalization? Like, why, what did you learn? I mean, uh, this is where you, you actually read the Quran, because you learned the Arabic at this point, and, right. you, really, and you saw what it said, and so, uh, could you explain that a little more, like how it was a natural de-radicalization?
2: Yeah, sorry, I did jump right over that. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it was basically, <laughs> it was a, um, what did he call it, reframing. Right? So I, I used to wear glasses mm-hmm. at the time and the sheikh said, you know, I'm gonna give you a new pair of glasses by which to see the world. And what he is doing mm-hmm. by that is if if you want to, you know, nerd out a little bit, he is recreating my epistemological methodology. The the sources of my information, he is redefining the boundaries of that now. So When Uh when I read a verse in the Quran and and I just, you know, spit the verse out and tell you this is what it means, he tells me, you can't do that. You read the verse, okay, you have an understanding of what it means at that moment. Then you go and look at what the books of exegesis say about that verse. And in those those, uh, exegesis works, interpretation you will find multiple scholars giving multiple opinions.
0: Mm. And once
2: you've done that, then you have to look at the social and historical context in which this verse is being revealed or this verse is, you know, uh, being made available to you. So I, I always use a very famous uh, chapter 9. There's a chapter 9, verse 5. A lot of the extremists and and even anti-Muslims like people who don't like Muslims they quote the verse the same way okay it's ironic it says basically this is how we would quote it it says kill the unbelievers wherever you find them right now that is only part of the verse right so the sheikh says to me he goes oh very good he goes that's verse 5 do you normally start from verse 5 maybe you should start from verse 1 just to, just an idea and basically, the, the the point is, I'm not going to go into too much detail, but the verse, if you quote it like that, can be, I mean, it's vicious, right? It's vicious. Kill the unbelievers wherever you find them. But, in right. fact, you look at verse 1, it's talking about a very specific group of people, polytheists, where, where, with whom a treaty was made, a peace treaty. And they broke the treaty. So now, the verse later goes on to say, okay, now... Fight, right? Now the hostilities resume. Now it's interesting because in chapter, in verse 4, the verse directly preceding verse 5, says, Not included in this statement are those polytheists who did not break the peace treaty and who have not harmed you. Ah, really? so that's telling you that it's a very specific group of people who you're supposed to be going after or fighting back against. Mm-hmm. So that mm-hmm. was the context, right? And so it was like this. He and we went through the whole Quran, and and doing this kind of debunking uh-huh. of extremist ideology. And so that's that's how my that's how this n- natural organic process occurred.
1: Well, you know, it's so interesting because that is, you know, what maybe the most famous line, right? That people yeah. use to say. Well, that both um, jihadists use to recruit and. And people used to be Islamophobic, right?
2: Absolutely. I mean, because if I can just quickly shout out a a, a Google search phrase, uh, so it's Newsy, okay. you know, that it's like a media corporation, Newsy, like N E W S Y, and then Mubeen Sheikh, M U B I N S H A I K H, that will bring up uh, how extremists distort the Quran. And it's a, I think it's like a minute and a half, very quick and really effective, and it talks about that exact same verse. So that's, that's for your listeners there. So let me, let me move mm-hmm. on a, a bit because I know I'm eating into my time. Yeah. Uh, sorry. So I, I, this <laughs> is when I come ahead. back from Syria. Sorry? Go ahead. Okay. I come back from Syria. Um, you know, a newfound appreciation, uh, become a walk-in for the Canadian Security Intelligence Service, and effectively become I an mean, become an undercover and work undercover operations for the next few years now all, all I can say I can't mention specifics about where I went and you know what groups were involved, but I mean you know I wasn't infiltrating the bikers right that's for sure right I mean they were Muslim extremists right that's what I was with this was online uh infiltration going into password protected chat forums seeing who's doing the recruiting, who's being recruited, what are the mechanisms of the recruitment. And remember, this is 2005. This is before Facebook and Twitter, if we can imagine mm. such a time. And, yeah, right. uh, and so a lot of this stuff had to be done in real life. So long story short, you know, one, of the, one of the investigations I was involved in, uh, these guys were plotting catastrophic terror attacks in Toronto Uh, I successfully infiltrated the group, uh, gathered the needed evidence against the group, and then this group was then prosecuted in a court, right, an open public prosecution. Uh, Eighteen individuals were arrested. Uh, Seven were released because of my sympathetic testimony because the reality was these guys were not, they were peripheral players. They were not as involved. Uh, They were tricked into going to the the camp. Um, But 11... Uh, either pled guilty or were found guilty. And I would spend uh, five years, uh, four years in court uh, assisting in that prosecution. In 2010, the court case was done. Everything was done. I became a free agent, free person. And then I got onto social media. And then I started to see the rise of ISIS in real time. By 2012, um, ISIS was already in Syria uh, 2013, we started to see uh, a lot of Westerners going over to join ISIS. 2014 is when they declared their so-called caliphate, uh, and uh, you started to see a lot more people. By the end of 2014 is when the first uh, ISIS-directed attack occurred. Uh, and then years 2015, 2016, 2017, the attacks just, went, uh, just increased exponentially. And if you look at the, right. the death count uh, globally uh, of ISIS, it, it accelerates considerably from, from 2014 all the way through to 18. And so it was in this time, in, in 2012, 2013, 14, 15 and 16, <laughs> that, that I was very involved online, infiltrating ISIS networks, using fake accounts, using my real name yeah. and my real account, engaging them, debating them tracking them, trolling them, Uh, and this is when a lot of my work with the U.S. military also started to take shape uh, with the U.S. State Department uh, in trying to help them fight that ISIS threat. So here we are in 2019, and let's see see what the next years bring us.
1: (laughs) Okay, but wait a second. How were you able to use your real name when everyone already knew who you were from this you know, four-year, you said, trial of the Toronto 18. I mean, you were in the news all the time. Yep. And here we go. We have to take a break here, but that's good. We'll leave everybody at a cliffhanger because, <laughs> <laughs> you know, and, and one thing you kind of slid past um, is humbly um, is all of the, uh, the chaos, you know, the, the, um, the turmoil that you had to undergo, like going basically from one um, side to the other side, in a sense, and back and forth and back and forth. And people from your family and people who you went to school with, see, yeah, I remember all this stuff, <laughs> people, <laughs> you know, you were kind of, um, you were getting it from all sides. People thought you were a tra- the Muslim people. who oh, went no, school, I sure people did. People thought you were a traitor and all of that. So we can uh, get into that a little bit more. Uh, and how you have managed to stay alive (laughs) until 2019 when we come back. So stay tuned. You're listening to Dr. Carol's Couch. And I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman.
3: VoiceAmerica.com
0: Welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. If you have a question or comment for Dr. Carol, dial toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. Now back to the show, here's Dr. Carol Lieberman. And
1: welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist, Dr. Carol Lieberman talking with uh, an undercover, the undercover jihadi, who has now come out from under the covers, uh, Mubin Sheikh. And we left off, I was saying about how he humbly did not mention just how difficult uh, having gone undercover and then uh, testifying about the Toronto 18 for four years approximately, um, how, how stressful that was because of different people, different factions, thinking that he should be doing different things than what he was doing. So give us a little taste of that.
2: Yeah, I mean, you know, I make excuses for the Muslim community because, you know, in a post-9-11 environment, uh, you know, hyper-securitization, uh, you know, in, in 2006, nobody thought, you know, I mean, radicalization wasn't really even being uh, studied seriously by scholars. Uh, right. I mean, it, it had begun really after 9/11, and so uh, the community was basically in denial. Uh, didn't believe that there were actually young kids out to do bad things, um, you know, motivated by ideology, you know, fueled by grievances. Uh, they just refused to believe it. And so when when it became when it was revealed that I was the undercover, uh, everybody turned on me. Uh, my community definitely, uh, we'll call it a. You know, I want to kind of say a, a large vocal minority, but I think it's larger than a minority. Right? I won't say it's the majority,
1: uh,
2: but it ain't the minority either. Right? Uh, they, they just basically said, this is entrapment, you set it up, you, you, know, you made them do all this. And I mean, no amount of evidence was going to convince them otherwise. I mean, the, the plot was underway several months, actually, before I was uh, inserted into the group. Uh, I mean, there was an overwhelming amount of evidence uh, against them, even before I showed up. And certainly the courts uh, were on my side. I mean, the judges all agreed with me, uh, declared me a truthful, incredible witness. Uh, And and all the things that, you know, the community said, it it did hurt. It hurt a lot, you know. I mean, because I think um, it's a part of my Sufi training, right? Like my ego was attached to, or my, my, so my ego, it was the result of my, my position in the Muslim community. Everybody liked me. I was invited to all the events or whatever. Everyone wanted to hear me speak. Like, and now suddenly it was, boom, cut off. You're gone. You're out. So mm. it, did, it did hurt, right? I mean, it was like a part of me was like cut off. But, but you know, my, my Sufism has taught me uh, that uh, we don't do things for people. Right There's a great ver- a, a verse in the Quran, um, I think it's chapter 4, verse 134, um, where it, st- it says, Stand firm for justice, even against your parents, even against the rich and the poor, even against your own selves. And when you are ordered to give your testimony, give it truthfully. And if you don't, then God is aware of what you do. And mm-hmm. you know, I've been reading that verse my whole life, and one day that verse became my life. Mm-hmm. <laughs>
1: mm-hmm.
2: So, yeah. so you know what? I, I, it did hurt, and but it was a, it was a, a learning experience for me, and I think what's happened is, um, since the whole ISIS stuff, you know, ISIS things, uh, you know, in especially in twenty fourteen and so on, uh, I, I was getting a lot of media uh, appearances and media requests. Uh, and I think when the community saw the way that I was speaking uh, about the topic, I didn't go rogue and lash out at the community. I just sucked it up is what I did. And I said, look, uh-huh. if they don't understand, I'm going to be merciful. And, and you know, I, I get it. They're in a tough situation. And I just kept doing my thing. right? And so they, I think a lot mm-hmm. of them have come around and realized that, okay, maybe he's not such a bad guy after all.
1: Mhm mhm. Okay, so then you were saying from 2012 on you were going on the internet trying to help the government with counterterrorism and all that. And I was asking you how did you do that? You said some of the time you used your real name. How did you do that? Yeah. Because didn't people recognize your name?
2: Oh, they they did and and in fact this was one of my my experiment, right? It, what my experiment was to see given that I was this notorious figure uh, how many of them would actually engage with me, right? And in uh-huh. fact, and of course, I expected that many of them who did uh, do their research on me. So basically, the, the range of responses went from the top was instant block, right? And they, that's it, I'm out. Uh, oh. Secondly, it was a barrage of insults uh, constantly, right? And, and that's fine. I mean, I got used to that. Then there were the if you will kind of caught in the middle. So they were they were, you know, they liked the way that I was speaking, um but they didn't like my background, right? They didn't like the fact that I was associated with western intelligence agencies because these were these these people are our adversaries, right? They weren't and so why would they be talking mm-hmm. to a guy like me, right?
0: And the answer mm-hmm. is,
2: is because these guys now. My my, my strategy here was, of course, as, the longer I engage them in conversation and dialogue, the longer they leave their digital footprint and they cast mm. their digital signal. And so I had, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I had conversations with U.S. State Department and uh, you know U.S. Uh, military agencies, we'll say. Uh, and I knew that my my account was being monitored by the U.S. government. And everyone that I was talking to from that group, they were also being monitored. So I wasn't doing it for money. I wasn't doing it for, I, I, was, I was only, uh, you know, uh, performing my craft, if you will, right? Because I, I had, I was just personally motivated to, to counter ISIS, right? I mean, these people are, you know, savages, right? I mean, deviants of the worst kind, and so I don't, you don't need to give me money, you know, for me to do what I'm doing. So the, the government was like, what's this guy's angle? And, and I, <laughs> my angle is simply, listen, this is my religious duty to come out huh. against these guys and after these guys. That's it. So, huh. so basically all these accounts, they were tracked. Um, and I'll be, I'll be honest, uh, some of these guys got, they got killed. They got killed in airstrikes. Um, now I, I I'm not going to take any credit, and it's possible that some of my intelligence was what well, was used, but uh, I'm not I'm not ashamed of it, and I'm not certainly I don't feel bad about uh-huh. it. Uh, but that's one way to deal with uh, you know I make a joke called kinetic de-radicalization works 100 uh-huh. percent of the time, right? <laughs> <laughs> so uh, that's, well, that, so that's how of- I was able to do it.
1: Okay. Well, that's that's very interesting, and this kind of goes into, and I want to make sure we have enough time to talk about, um, your new work, um, the company that you just found, well, I know just, but um, the Fusion Team or Fusion Intel, tell us about that.
2: Yeah, uh, fusionintel.com is the website. It's the Fusion Team. Uh, I'm a partner in the company, actually, so there's three of us. Uh, One of my partners is an ex-CIA counterterrorist targeting officer, uh, he worked in the counterterrorism center of the CIA, and like these guys were, these were the guys, you know, tactically deradicalizing terrorists uh, full time. My um, uh, and he's also uh, so he he's actually uh, we're doing a number of media products. He's like uh, plugged into the media world as an ex CIA guy. Uh, the uh, the other partner is a, a former senior Navy pilot. Um, So, basically, our streams are like counterterrorism and and cybersecurity, uh, illicit financing, and then uh, uh, UAVs, uh, unmanned aerial vehicles. So, that's the whole company, and uh, we've been doing a bunch of stuff. I mean, uh, you know, there's uh, one component is training government agencies, Uh, so I'm still very much involved in that. Um, State Department as well, uh, working with, let's say, State Department who are trying to train other countries on what to do uh, about ISIS in particular. So the concern right now is foreign terrorist fighter returnees, uh, these people who are coming Mm -hmm. back and going back to their respective countries. What the heck is our plan uh, for that? So, Mm
1: -hmm. And, I mean,
2: it's it's very daunting, let's put it that way, because the biggest concern that, that Western democracies are facing is how are you going to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that these people committed murder or rape or whatever it is. How are you going to prove that? I mean, unless they, they appear on video doing it and giving their name and saying who they are. So mm-hmm. this is a big, big problem. And so now all these, all these ISIS prisoners are being held in Iraq and Syria and various Kurdish camps, and no country wants to deal with them because it's like, are we gonna, what are we going to do? Like, so Britain, for example, Canada and Australia, I would say, three Commonwealth-based countries are experiencing the, the most difficulties because, one, you're not going to be able to prove murder, rape, and, like, the more egregious uh, offenses. And number two, I mean, imagine the travesty of, you know, going all the way to bring them back into your country only to, what, not be able to charge them and let them go? That's insane. Mm-hmm. That's insane. Mm-hmm. Now, the U.S. is actually, uh, co- I mean, better placed to prosecute these people because... You will, you know, America, Americans, uh, American uh, justice system, you'll get 40 years in a prison. And you're not getting out until you're 65. And so, you know, in Canada, you're not going to get a 40-year sentence. You know, we were talking about the Toronto 18 guys who were arrested in 2006. Every single one of them is out of prison except two.
1: Sure. Huh. And,
2: and they got 20 they years.
1: Been de- have they been de- no, de- they right now? No, Have no, they
2: haven't. No, no, they haven't. They're, they're, even still in Canada, there are no uh, official, formal de-radicalization programs. Uh, I am uh, working on some stuff. I guess if I can give a shout-out to another organization, uh, parentsforpeace.org. Parentsforpeace.org. Um, and, and I am working with them to try to bring this kind of understanding, at least awareness, and, and ideally some programs into the prison systems dealing with radicalized prisoners in particular so that's some of the stuff what we're doing there's a we have a a crazy crazy uh, project that we are doing on uh, the fusion team Um, let me just okay how can I put this because I don't want to you know kind of expose it all yet but basically we are going to rescue a uh, girl uh, a daughter who was taken by force um, to Syria to join ISIS. Uh, who was captured by the Kurds along with the mother, and we are going to rescue her from the prison and bring her back to her real parents. And we're going to put it oh. all on video. Yeah.
1: That sounds so, uh, great.
2: So yeah, I'll be going to Syria uh, with my CIA buddy there, um, and uh, it's going to be it's going to be crazy. I mean, armored cars, uh, they, there's a whole safe houses. I mean, it's, it's I, I mean, what they say, like diary. the movies. <laughs> yeah, it's, yes, it's way exactly. better than the I movies. Hope it's you're real life.
1: Di- I, hope you're, I hope you're keeping a diary of all of this.
2: Yeah, no, it will be, it will be, a, we're doing a documentary. Um, this will be put out in documentary form.
1: Ah, okay. So Yeah, so
2: it will be a publicly available media product. Um, that okay. that everyone will hear about
1: okay, great, well, um our time has is up, <laughs> but of course, I want to have you back on. <laughs> we can talk about some of the uh you know the hot topics of the day um like uh well and, and let me direct people also to mubeen's um LinkedIn profile because you put up some of the most interesting stories about terrorism. i always <laughs> I go there to to check out what's going on because you know. One of the things is, of course, that we don't, in the U.S. anyway, we don't really get a lot of the media in terms of what's going on in these other uh, countries and what's going on all over the world in terms of terrorism. So, um, you know, you find some things that, that sometimes aren't in the U.S. or are in very tiny little places that, you know, they hope nobody sees. Well, I want to thank my guest again, Mubeen Sheikh. Um, his company is called FusionIntel.com, and just... Um, to- Thank you. My admiration for you just grows, so thank you very much. And thank you all for listening. You've been listening to Dr. Carol's Couch, and I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman.
0: Thank you for joining us on Dr. Carol's Couch. Join us next week at 1 p.m. Pacific time for another installment of Dr. Carol's Couch. We'll save you a seat.